everyone, welcome to the series called The Talk of the Table, where we're getting away from small talk and we're getting to the meat of the matter. Real, powerful conversations that can change your world. In this episode, we're gonna talk about how you can share your faith with other people or how you can understand faith in a deeper way. We hope that this talk will have an impact on you. I wanna invite you to stay to the end where I have some more information for you. And before you log off, don't forget to go to branchlife.church to fill out your connection card. We'd love to connect with you. Thanks for joining us today. Enjoy this episode. Well, if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 10 and Luke chapter 15 are going to be two places where we're going to be diving in today in just a couple of minutes. Uh, we're in our Talk at the Table series, and this has been a summer series all about talking about faith. How can we share our faith with the, our friends and our neighbors around us? We studied the book of Acts. This is that giant application of you are empowered by God to be witnesses. So let's go. How do we do that? Well, our goal at Branch Life Church has been been to have 100 table talks this summer between now and September 10th uh, uh, with other people about faith, whether it's actually hosting someone at your house or taking them out for a cup of coffee or a round of golf. Whenever you get a chance to intentionally talk about faith, we've been asking you to let us know. This table talk goal is represented down in the cafe. You can see the chairs that are hanging from the ceiling, and every week those chairs go. We have until September 10th, I don't know, about, about three more weeks until we get there. We're going to close out this particular series, then you have another week to finish off the table talks for the summer. And uh, with just three weeks to go, how far are we to our 100 table goal? Well, as of this time last Sunday, we have had 58 table talks. Praise God for that. Let's give a round of applause. 58 people have heard the good news of Jesus Christ. 58 conversations have taken place. 58 of you have, have in boldness taken that step to say, I love God and God loves you. And let me, let me talk to you about it. These have resulted in salvations and baptisms already this summer, and it is the power of being a witness. The Holy Spirit is moving powerfully through you, and I'm praying for you as you continue to have these talks, whether it's with a stranger or somebody you've been praying about as you're one for a decade now, uh, God can use these discussions. Now, we're talking today in our Table Talk forum about the guest. It's kind of a, a traditional sitcom episode, whether you grew up watching like the Brady Bunch or I love Lucy. Nobody's cheered for any of those, so I didn't, I didn't know if those would come in or not as exciting. Maybe you saw it on WandaVision, right? Right? Nobody? Nah, not, a, not a one. I liked WandaVision. I thought that was exciting. Jenny liked WandaVision when it started with like Brady Bunch-esque episodes, but then as soon as it turned into like superheroes zapping each other into, with their eyes, she was like, I'm out. <laughs> yeah, she didn't watch anymore. In all of those series and all those sitcoms, they have this episode where they decide they're going to invite somebody important over to their house for dinner. Usually it's somebody's boss or, or uh, employer, right? And they're going to bring them over. They want to get the promotion. They want to get accepted. 
and they, they bring them over to their house. They start to host the meal, and inevitably something goes terribly wrong. They're trying to impress them, but it becomes this hilarious catastrophe, right? And, and they were nervous, and they were leading up to it, and they were thinking about, you know, what they were going to do to try to impress the guest. Whenever you're having a table talk, it always takes at least two people. It takes the host and the guest, and last week, we, we reminded you some truths that you can't forget as a host about yourself. This week, we want to talk to you about the guest. Now, if you're anything like me, I spent a, I've spent many, many weeks, many, many years, many seasons of my life not really thinking about my neighbor. Not intentionally, anyway. You, if you're anything like me, you can go through seasons where you're really focused on yourself, where you're really focused on your schedule, where you're really busy, where you're kind of just trying to survive the toddler years, or you're trying to, to get through raising teenagers, right? And, and you've got jobs, and you've got assignments, and you've got deadlines, and you've got places to go and people to be, and now the pastor's asking you to sign up for another team, and oh my goodness, what am I going to do? And all of a sudden, you, you, you can get through an entire season and you realize that you've had maybe like a year's worth of meals and you've never invited somebody over. You never even thought about it. You never intentionally said, you know what, I would love to share what's mine with somebody else. And then, if you're like Lucy or Desi, maybe you get to the point where you're like, it's not that you want to have somebody over, it's that you have to have somebody over because you want to impress them. Why? So you can get something more for yourself. And so you use your hospitality as kind of like a ploy to gain more for you. What God asks us to do as Christians is to think less about ourselves and more about others. In other words, it should be a regular, rhythmic practice in our lives. It should be as natural as breathing in and breathing out to regularly, daily, weekly, monthly, seasonally consider others before yourself. How is my neighbor doing? How is my friend doing? How can I bless them? How can I help them? How can I encourage them? How can I come alongside of them? How can I bring Jesus? How can I be light? How can I be salt in this world to those that are around me? And it's no wonder that so many of us get sucked into this self-focus, distracted from the other focus, because the last thing Satan wants us to do is considers others before ourselves. The last thing Satan wants us to, to do is to love our neighbor. The last thing Satan wants us to do is to spread the good news about Jesus. The last thing Satan wants us to do is to be salt and light. And so he says, if I can just get them so busy, if I can just get them so self-focused, if I can just get them so worn down and tired, so stressed out, so entertained by what they're watching on television, so into their sports schedule, so all about themselves, they'll never think about their neighbor. They'll never do what God actually designed them to do. They'll actually remove themselves from the mission. They'll take themselves 
off the playing field. And if we've been trying to do one thing during this Talk of the Table series, it's been to encourage you to think first about someone else. To think about who it is you could bless, who it is you could encourage, who it is you could share your faith in, who it is God has brought into your sphere, into your life that needs light and salt. And today, we want to focus on that person. We want you to think briefly this morning about the guest, about someone else other than yourself. And today we're simply saying there's, there's four reminders, four things that if we remind ourselves about these things, if we keep these on the forefront of our mind, as we read through Scripture, we'll see these remind, reminders all over the place. We intentionally say, God, thank you for reminding me about this truth about my guest. Why is it God wants us to be others-focused? Why is it, are, why are we not supposed to just be the best disciple we can be and let everyone else do their thing? No, God asks us to be disciples who make disciples. And these reminders will help us to do just that. Reminder number one comes from Luke chapter 15. It says, your guest, they are lost treasures that must be found. Why are we supposed to think about others? Well, they are lost treasures that must be found. We talk a lot about finding things that are lost in this series. And in Luke chapter 15, Jesus gives three examples. So if you have your Bibles, go there. Three examples of what it means to be a lost thing that is treasured. Now, in, in Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1, it says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Let's just, if we want to be like Jesus for a second, just think about Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Who was near Jesus? Well, tax collectors and sinners, right? Everywhere he went, tax collectors and sinners. Everywhere he went, tax collectors and sinners. He was hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. He was having meals with tax collectors and sinners. So he's having one of these opportunities, and he was around people that were lost, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, remember, religious people don't like it when you and I spend time with tax collectors and sinners, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Why, why are you doing this? Why are, you, why are you spending time eating with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus says in verse 4, what man of you having a hundred sheep? If he has lost one, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me. For I have found my lost sheep. I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Sometimes we think we are doing pretty good. We are pretty proud of ourselves when we actually got up on Sunday. We got the kids dressed. We got them fed mostly. We got them in the car. We made it past, past the Pastor Bill bar barricade in the parking lot. We parked the car. We got into the building. We got checked in, we made it to the worship service, we sang the songs, and we go, I bet the angels are proud of me now. I bet they're up there going, dad a boy, dad a girl, way to get there. 
Way to get to worship. Way to gather. Wait, you may even have got here early and served the coffee and practiced your music. Way to go, right? I did such a good job today. That's what God wants. God loves it when his people gather together. God loves it when you get here and you serve. When you're ministered and you minister to other people. God loves it. But you know what he loves more? One person coming to Christ. One person seeing the good news of Jesus. The angels can go up there and be like, yeah, now we're singing, and they're going to smile just like the rest of us. We're, we're one voice together. That's pretty amazing. Sundays are great, but you know what's, you know what's going to cause a louder cheer in the kingdom of God? One lost sheep being found, and then they're going to go bonkers, right? Oh, my word, the party in heaven. I love when I'm hanging out with somebody who accepts Jesus, and I get to point them to this truth. Do you know what's happening in heaven right now? Do you know what is going on? What? They are cheering. They are partying. They're throwing a ticker tape parade. Like, I don't know how they do it. I don't know what it is, but it's pretty exciting according to this verse they celebrate. Why? That's the mission. That's the goal. It's not about the 99 huddling. It's about each of the 99 reaching one for Jesus. Light and, light and salt piercing into the darkness. He keeps going. In case you didn't get it the first time. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she lost one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, seek diligently until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This coin is like the equivalent of your engagement ring in this culture. And if you lost your engagement ring, right, you're going to go all out and you're going to find it. And what, what makes them so, man, you girls and your wedding rings, right? Like there's something special about that ring. And when you lose it, you're going to find it. And when you find it, you're going to throw a party, you're going to call your girlfriends, you're going to get your husband, you're going to get the kids out together and be like, I found, I found my ring that was lost. That's why every now and then there's a, news, there's a news article, right? Like, diamond ring flushed down a drain found on beach, right? And then it somehow finds its way back to the owners through the miracles of the internet, and they actually put it on the news. Why? Because it's a big deal. It's a big deal. And God, God gives the parable of the sheep, he gives the parable of the coin, and in case we didn't get it, he spends the rest of the chapter, from chapter verse 11 all the way through verse 32, another 20 verses. And he gives us the parable of the lost son. And which father of you, I'll summarize, not having lost their son, doesn't wait and look and long and plead and pray and beg for the moment when that lost son will return. And when he does return, throw the biggest party your household, your neighborhood, your town has ever seen. Why? Because that lost son has returned. All three of those stories remind us of this truth. What is the valuable thing that we should search for, that we should go all in after, that we should party when we find? A Wi-Fi signal is not the right answer. 
I think our version of what should we look for today is Wi-Fi. I've been hanging out with teenagers all week. My, teen, my, my, nephew and niece, my nephew and nieces came in from Michigan this weekend. We hung out with them. I took them down to Philly. I hung out with teenagers in Raystown. Uh, we had a, a trip up to the lake. We were a part of that. It was awesome. Teenagers are fantastic. They love it, but they're addicted to Wi-Fi. And you say to the teenager, you say, teenager, why are you so addicted to Wi-Fi? And you know what they say? I learned it by watching you, Dad. <laughs> All of us are. And if you lose your signal, you see what happens? We go crazy, right? Trying to find the signal. Why? Because I want to get back on my phone. I want to be entertained. I want this valuable thing in my life that makes me feel better. The valuable thing is not the sheep, the coin, the Wi-Fi, the sun. The valuable thing is the neighbor. The valuable thing is the guest. The valuable thing is that person that God brings into your life that doesn't know Jesus. The first reminder about our guests is that they are lost treasures that must be found. Do you treasure those people around you that are lost? Do you treasure them? In this parable, there's three truths to remind ourselves. Lost items are valuable. Sometimes in our culture, we can get this, in the Christianity culture, we can get this us versus them mentality. We can get the I'm the good guy, they're the bad guy. I wear the white hat, they wear the black hat, right? And then we're, we're, we know what needs to be done, so we're going to fight for our rights, our, our way, and we're going we're gonna to stand in culture against the flood of them badness. And we start looking at them as enemies, God loves Eagle fans as much as he loves Cowboy fans. And that is a hard truth for us to remember sometimes. And when I was growing up, the other team was the enemy. They were people you, you yelled at and you elbowed when the ref wasn't watching. They were the ones that you, you despised and you got all angry and frothy when they did good. That's why it was such a crazy thing for me that after the game, sometimes you would actually gather together and pray with people from the other team. What? Because they're people that are equally loved by God, even though they're on the other team. Even though they have a different political stripe. Even though they don't see culture the same way I see it. Even though they voted for someone different than I would vote for even though they're from a different country where they speak a different language, they are valuable treasures that God loves, and so should you. They are, there is an all-out search to find the lost item. How is your search going? How is your investing in seeking going? What's in your rhythm? What's in your mind? What's in your actions? What's in your schedule? What's in your wallet that is put towards helping people who are lost become found. And the third thing is there's this all-out celebration when the lost item's found. That's why we love baptisms. Because it's awesome when someone says, I'm all in for Jesus. It's the best possible news that impacts eternity. Did you hear the news? That bride found her wedding ring. That's pretty amazing. That's going to change nothing. Did you hear the news? That person who was lost has accepted Jesus and now their eternity is changed forever. 
celebrate, cheer, yell, cry, scream, jump up and down because it's the most important thing. But if you have to fake it, the celebration, you're missing something else. Luke chapter 15 brings these celebrations to light every single story. And in the story of the prodigal son, verse 32, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for, for your brother was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. That's why we say it this way, found people, find people. Found people, find people, because I once was lost. I once was dead. I once was blind. But God used someone to reach me, and I have now been found. And by amazing grace, I have been saved. And so what do I do with that? Go through the rest of my life and never tell a soul about it? No. I've been found, so therefore I will find. I'm going to find people for Jesus for the rest of my life. The second thing we need to know about our guest is that dead people can't help themselves. Dead people can't help themselves. We, I, I took my nephews to Philly. We did the Rocky Steps, and somebody put this hideous uh, movie advertisement all over the step that ruins all our pictures. And uh, we got to the Rocky Steps, and we decided to go see the thinker who's in the Ro Rodin Museum area, because I'm, I'm cultured like that. And I went down to the muse Rodin Museum area, and we saw the thinker, and we did our picture and our posing, and and uh, went in, and there's, a, there's chess in the courtyard. So my nephew said, I want to play chess. And the, my other nephew said, I, I want to play chess. And so the two of them went to start playing chess, one on the right side, white side and one on the black side. And, and they get ready to go play chess. And then they looked up at me, and they said, how do you play chess? <laughs> now imagine if I said, uh, yeah, just give it your best shot. Neither of them know how to play chess. They're going to look at the board and they're going to have no idea what to do. They, they're not going to play the game right. They, they don't know how to make the moves, right? And it's just going to be a hot mess. And nothing's going to happen. Two people who don't know how to play chess, trying to play chess, will not be able to play chess. It's just not possible. They need a guide. They need a teacher. They need an instructor. They need someone to mimic or, or to watch, right? But they can't just figure that one out on their own. That's the same Thing, the same principle about lost people. Dead people can't help themselves. Dead people can't even breathe. And yet we start looking at lost people and going, you know what? I think they're going to be just fine, right? They'll figure it out on their own. They're going to do the right thing eventually. They're going to get there. I bet they're going to find their way to church someday and they're going to want to sit there and they're just going to show up and it's going to be a shock. That would be a shock. That would be unbelievable if a dead person decided to come to worship. Like, that's not how it works. When I think about my guests, remember, Jesus has told us over and over again that they are, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Dead, not alive, not breathing, can't help ourselves. In, in Romans chapter 8, verse 8, those who, were, those who are of the flesh cannot, cannot, it is not possible for someone who is not a part of the family of God to please God. They can't do it. They can't do enough good works to please God. They can't say enough kind things to please God. They're dead. They can't help themselves. They have no standing before God. They can't please God in any way. That's why there is absolutely nothing you can do to earn salvation. It's not possible. Dead people can't help themselves. Dead people can't even please God. 
John 8, chapter 34 says, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. If we're dead in our trespasses and sin, that means that our sin, that sin that we're dead in, has us enslaved. And it's no wonder unsaved people act like unsaved people. <laughs> it's no wonder that, that unsaved people will choose sin. It's no wonder that half of all the marriages will end in divorce. Half. Now there's a popular misnomer out there that says it's the same for Christians. It's not. If you dig into the numbers and, and, and it says everyone who calls themselves a Christian and half, half of them will get a divorce, that's, that's a broad stroke at everyone who would say, hey, what's your religion? Well, I'm a Christian. Great. Half of those marriages end in divorce. But if you start digging down into those numbers and you start asking follow-up questions and say something like this, not just if you call yourself a Christian, but if you attend worship service, if you read your Bible weekly, if you are a part of a small group or a Sunday school class, if you serve in your local church, and if those things are all true of you, a practicing follower of Jesus who believes and follows the Bible, the number of marriages that survive is in the 80 to 90 percent. That's way different. Well, why are there so many divorces for people who aren't following Jesus? Why do, why do people make such horrible mistakes? Why, why, why is there so much addiction? Why is there so much bad language out there? Why is there so many traffic tickets? Why? why? Well, because slaves to their sin. They're, they're slaves to selfishness. They're, they're slaves to self-promotion. They're, they're slaves to wanting fame and fortune. They're slaves to all of those things. And, and that's how they're going to act. And as believers in Jesus, we need to remind ourselves that lost people are going to act like lost people. And we can't expect people to behave before they belong. And for so long in Christian culture... We have said to people, nope, you've got to act a certain way, you've got to dress a certain way, you've got to talk a certain way, you've got to have a certain lifestyle before we will even consider you, allowing you to be a part of the club. And we start demanding that people behave a certain way when they don't even know better. Why would anyone follow after Jesus if they don't know him? Why would anyone have a clean vocabulary if they don't know Jesus? Why would anyone do those things? They don't know God. And when you have a guest and when you have a neighbor, stop being disappointed when they act like they're lost. Stop getting mad and frustrated when they act like sinners. Why? Because they're a slave to it. They're dead and they can't help it. It's how sinners are going to act. And, and let's, let's work on showing them Jesus instead of fixing their behavior. In our small group, we, we were studying the book of Job, and the guy leading us through the discussion said something that resonated with me all weekend. He said, listen, our job as Christians is not to fix other people. It's to take them to the person who can. Our job is not to fix the problem. Our job is to take people to the presence of the doctor who can. And so our job is to show people Jesus. It's to bring the one who can give life, the one that can heal blindness. And so our, our job is not to correct sinners sinful behavior our job is to introduce them to Jesus and then once they know Jesus God together will work 
on changing their behaviors. So don't freak out when sinners act like sinners. God loves them and so should you. We must remind ourselves of this when we are hosting guests. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God and the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was, what's the next word? Life. And the, what's the word? Life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. What is our hope for the dead and dying around us, those that are lost in darkness, that the life and the light of Jesus will come in and the darkness will not overcome it? That's what we know when we remember our guests are dead and they can't help themselves. The third thing we need to remember is a difficult truth. People headed to hell must be warned. People headed to hell must be warned. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, Jesus says. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to what? Destruction. And those who enter by it are many. Just look at this picture for a moment. The gate that leads to destruction, the road that leads to destruction is wide. It's large and it's nice and it's an easy highway. And the, the place that it goes is awful, yet there are many people going through that gate. That's a problem. That's, that's awful news. And then he says, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Few. If there was, if there was one theology that I could erase from the Bible, and I've said it before, I'd erase the hell out of the Bible. <laughs> I would just get rid of it. <laughs> Thank you. I thought it was funny myself. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd have it go. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to teach about it. I don't want to tell my friends about it. I don't want to understand the reality of it. I don't want to think about it. And the more that you study the reality of hell and you realize broad is the road that leads to destruction and many people are on it, the more bummed I get. And I would say to God, God, can't we figure out something else? Can we kind of rearrange it a little bit so it all works out in the end? I mean, like, they're dead, right? They can't help themselves. And God, and God if, if, I was, if I was God and I was doing it, we'd, we'd, we'd figure out maybe a different kind of punishment, right? And, and they could maybe penance is starting to sound good. And if there was a way to pay for people to get into heaven, that's cool, right? Like, but that's not what the Bible teaches. And I have to go with what the Bible teaches because Jesus rose from the dead. And if Jesus rose from the dead, then everything he said must be true. And whether I like it or not, I must accept the reality that is taught in scripture. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 49 through 15, this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and they will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Contrast that to what's taught about heaven. In heaven, he will wipe away all your tears. In hell, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And wide and broad is the gate and the road that leads to destruction. And many are on it. What am I supposed to do with this truth about hell? Keep it to myself? Not tell anybody? Maybe, maybe they'll figure it out on their own? 
And if your kid was driving a car and started driving the wrong way down a one-way road, would you let him go? Would you sit in the side and go, I hope he's going to figure this one out? <laughs> yeah. Lesson learned the hard way is learned the long way, right? Like, no. You're going to say, son, you're going down the wrong way. It's a one-way road. It's going to lead to an accident. you got to get off of this road. you got to figure out how to turn around. You've got you've to head the other direction. And man, you would do everything in your power to correct that direction of the person you love. Why? Because narrow is the gate that leads to life. And few are on it. Charles Spurgeon says this, and I share this every time I teach about hell. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions, and let no one go unwarned, unwarned or unprayed. Why do you think Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost? Because he knew that they needed to be warned. He needed to do everything in his power to reach as many people as possible with the truth so that they could go to heaven. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Not hell, but eternity with God. That's the mission of Jesus. And if I love the lost treasure, I must warn them. In John chapter, Matthew chapter 7, so whatever you wish others would do for you, also do for them. It's the golden rule. Whatever you wish others would do for you, do for them. And if you were dead and if you were dying and if you were lost and you couldn't help yourself, would you want someone to come and show you the way? Would you want someone to come and show you the truth? And would you want them to do that in a way that would make sense to you, in a way that would be loving to you, in a way that would be uh, patient with you? However you would want someone to do this for you, go and do it for them. And I find if we use this principle in teaching other people about the truth of Jesus, the truth of heaven and hell, we will do it kindly, we will do it compassionately, we will do it patiently, but we will also do it. You see, when you look at the truth of hell, remember God's design was not to have hell. If you read Genesis chapter 1, God created the heavens and the earth. By the end of the seventh day, everything God created, he saw and said it was good. And he created this to be a perfect place where all humanity walked in the garden with God. But he also created men and angels with free will. And when men and angels chose sin, and by the way, free will is good. When men and angels chose sin, that broke the world. And God, being equally good and equally just, then had to prepare a place for Satan and his angels. And that brokenness, that sin, that justness has been satisfied for those who believe through the gospel. 
God pays our punishment so that we don't have to. And when you repent, I'm going the wrong way down a one-way road. When we turn from that and we go back towards God, we give our lives to Jesus, we believe in the power of the gospel, well then we can pursue God's design. We can be present with him forever in new heaven and new earth. I got saved when I was six years old, and I'll tell you the truth. I got saved when I was six years old because I was scared of hell. Absolutely terrified. And it brought me to the reality of this moment where I needed to do business with God. And so I did. I don't recommend leading off with hell. I don't recommend scaring children with this truth. There is a better way to do it. But yet it is a truth that we must communicate. And maybe today you have not yet put your faith and trust in Jesus. I have to tell you right now, don't wait another day. Because I do not know what tomorrow holds. Put your faith in Jesus today. Heaven is real. So is hell. If you have not yet put your faith in Jesus... If you have any questions, do business with God today. Talk to a prayer team member after. Go to the website. And lastly, what I want to encourage you as we think about guests, you're going to invite someone over. You're going to have a talk. Listen to this. Your guests, they are your neighbor. They are your neighbor. Now, here's, here's, just let me just remind you this and we'll go home. Jesus has a lot to say about that, right? Jesus has a lot to say about your neighbor. And so this morning, what is your neighborology? What's your theology about your neighbor? How do you consider your neighbors? What do you do? I grew up, I grew up at a, a, on a church camp compound. All of my neighbors were not only Christians, all of my neighbors were pastors and camp directors and full-time ministry. They all knew, the missionaries, that's everybody who was my neighbor. So when the Bible said, love your neighbor, I was like, hey, this is great. I got all kinds of other Jesus people around. Like, it was awesome. Like, I didn't know any lost people. I went to a Christian school. I, I worked at a Christian school. I, I so when I got into my 20s and 30s and I had neighbors who weren't saved, I was like scared of them. Like, wow, there are scary people out there. They're going to get you. <laughs> they don't know Jesus and they do bad things. My neighborology was not that great. I had some faulty thinking about neighbors. And maybe your neighborology isn't like mine, but maybe your neighborology is a little bit like that stupid neighbor put his fence post on the back of my property. And they always are parking their car in the wrong place. Their stupid dog barks at the worst time. I hate my neighbor. That's bad neighborology too. You ain't got it. Well, God said. So in order to, to change my neighborology, we said when we were moving here to Potsdam, we said, God, give us neighbors. He put us on a cul-de-sac where there are 30 other families. And I can throw a stone and hit any one of their front doors. 30 families within throwing distance of a stone. That's a lot of neighbors. In my neighborhood, then, that I walk around, within the mile that I walk, there are 400 families. Now I have neighbors all over the place, and God has changed my neighborology because I believe when God said, love the Lord with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, I think he meant it. And we at Branch Life Church believe he meant it. And so what do I get when I have 30 neighbors within stone's throw? And some of you are like, Problems. 
I get an opportunity to have 30 dynamic, interesting, flowing relationships. I get to have the opportunity to show the love of God to people every day who I will walk past, who I will talk with, our kids will play together, our dogs will play together, we have meals together, we can fellowship, we cry together, we go to funerals together, we celebrate together, and they're my neighbors, and they represent every stripe of humanity. And I've been told to love them. That's my neighborology. That I'm supposed to have love for my neighbors. And in Luke chapter 15, we don't have time to read it, in Luke chapter 15, there's the the parable of the prodigal, excuse me, the good Samaritan. And the good Samaritan sees a stranger beaten up on the side of the road. And that wasn't just a stranger, that was a person, an enemy from another town. And he sees that enemy, he sees that person beaten up on the side of the road, he cares for that person, he transports him to the hospital facility, he pays for his medical bills, he comes back the next day and does it again, and he is the good Samaritan because he demonstrated about how we should love our neighbors, no matter who they are, no matter what, no matter what it costs us, love your neighbor. And the end of that story says, go and do likewise. That's our neighborology. That's our neighborology. When I have a guest who is my neighbor, I'm supposed to love them, sacrifice for them, and care for them no matter what. So I'll ask the same question we started but with. What part of your regular rhythm intentionally includes seeking the lost? What part of your regular rhythm intentionally includes seeking the lost? Is it a regular practice for you your spouse, your family, to be intentional in when you realize that they are lost treasures that need to be found, that they're dead and they can't help themselves, that there is such a place as hell and we must warn people about them, and that simply because they are my neighbors, it's my mission to love them as much as I love God himself, man, that's going to cause me to change my rhythm. So maybe this week you can talk with a friend, with a family member over a meal or your small group and say, hey, this is a part of my rhythm, what God has brought into my life that helps me be faithful at being less focused on myself and to consider others first. I want to encourage you to come back next week because next week we're going to talk about the meal. And that's the opportunity that we have to be radically generous to our guests, to our neighbors. We pray together. God, as we consider who you are and the truths of your word, help our minds and our thoughts to be like yours when we consider the loss around us. And God, would those truths and those thoughts affect our every day, week, and years. Help us to be people who are continually seeking that which is lost. And God, would you help us to be known by our radical, unconditional, self-sacrificial love for neighbor. In your precious name we pray, amen. Hey guys, thanks for listening through that conversation today. And my prayer is that you'll be able to have powerful conversations in the days and weeks ahead where you can share your faith and see others come to faith. If that happens and someone comes to Christ because of your table talk, would you let us know? The best way you can do that is filling out your connection card anytime online at branchlife.church. We're there 24-7, and we would love to hear how God is using this series in your life. 
Don't forget to join us next time as we continue to have more conversation around the talk of the table.